0: Um, I have been out of town for a few weeks and out of the pulpit, and I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity, uh, Katie and I, to go see our families back in the south. And um, uh, I just want to let you know it's, it's great to miss church. It's great to be a part of a church that I, I miss uh, seeing the people here and participating in the life of in town. Um, and I've missed uh, my job of telling you uh, that Jesus loves you and that he's for you. And I think you'll see that as we uh, read this passage and talk about it together. As we get started, let me pray for us. Dear Lord, I pray that you would guide my words, uh, that they would be pleasing to you and instructive to all of us, that they would draw us to you, that we would find our lives in you, find our identity in you, find our salvation in you. Wherever we're coming from this morning, uh, doubtless there are people here that are struggling Uh, struggling with something that is going on, something circumstantial in their life, some difficulty, or maybe struggling with belief, struggling to believe that this is all worth it, that this makes sense of our world and that we can trust you. And so, Father, I pray that as we learn uh, through this passage many different lessons and many different thoughts, uh, many different truths, I pray that the one truth that would stand out would be your grace, your love for us, your unending favor, and your eternal forgiveness and your eternal presence. And I pray that we would rest in that, Lord. I pray that you would guide us now as we uh, read this passage and spend time uh, together, considering what it would mean for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. A story is told of Margaret Thatcher when she was uh, prime minister back in the '80s, at the height of her popularity, and you know, she goes and visits a nursing home like lots of politicians are, uh, are frequently do. And she was going door-to-door door door and introducing herself to the residents, and many of them were incredibly happy to see her. Margaret Thatcher is here. The prime minister is here. I'm so lonely in my room, and now this great, important, big person is here to say hello to me. And she goes door-to-door, door, but one lady clearly doesn't know who she is, and Thatcher leans over and says, do you know who I am? And the lady says, you know, I'm sorry, I don't. But if you ask the nurse, she could probably tell you who you are. <laughs> Paul is writing a letter to a group of churches who are in danger of forgetting who they are. They're in danger of losing their identity. Paul had planted these churches on the idea that there is one community of faith. There is one baptism. There is one gospel. There is one way to know God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And these churches were prospering, and they were growing, but then all of a sudden they began to revert back to some old ways of thinking. Some people had come into the churches with a message that was very contrary and very dangerous. What they were saying is that these are Christian people, Christian Jews, and they were saying that without a doubt, Jesus is essential. You can't come to God except through Jesus, but he's not sufficient. You can be saved through faith alone, but you must do more to belong fully to his community. You must add to your salvation these separating boundary markers, such as circumcision, such as eating eating clean and not unclean food. Fellowshipping and worshiping only with those people that did the same things, that attended to the Jewish holidays and the sacraments. And these things had been vital to the religious experience for generations, and so it seemed logical. But what happened is it created a divide in the churches in Galatia. You effectively had two churches. On one hand, you have the the kosher church, the truly holy church, the church that really gets it. And then you have the rank-and-file church. The church that are saved, but they aren't really hitting it out of the park. They're not the the big hitters. And even Peter, as Josh talked about last week, had fallen prey to this idea. He had reverted back to this old way of thinking that saw two different types of Christianity, two different types of Christians. And so you have this clash of the titans where Paul goes before Peter and opposes him publicly. These two leaders of the church have it out. And Paul says, no, Peter. You've been taught not to operate that way, not to live that way. But Peter, who had normally fellowship with the Gentiles, and this is why Paul is calling them out. When some of his Jewish friends came to town, he decided that he wanted to sit at their table. He wanted to sit at the cool kids' table. And so he broke off fellowship with these Gentile Christians. And in the next few verses... In the passage I'm going to read here in just a second, Paul gives further theological reflection upon that event, and he says three things, or I think three things come out. One is that the gospel is slippery, the gospel is solid, and the gospel is supernatural. So even with three weeks of vacation, I came up with an alliteration. You should be proud. That is high-octane preaching right there. (laughs) Let's read our passage, and then we'll talk about those three things. This is the New Testament reading. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And this is the word of the Lord. So two friends went to a conference, and this was a conference on the gospel, on how you can be set free by justification. You can be set right with God apart from anything you do, and nothing can stand in the way of His love. And so these two friends attended the conference, and they were so ecstatic about what they were learning. And they went back to their hotel room, and they were sitting on the balcony discussing what they were learning, and they were talking about what it would mean to their lives. And one of them was smoking a cigarette. And he said, I can't believe the good news of the gospel. This is so amazing. Jesus loved me so much that he gave up his life for me. So as as of right now, I'm giving up smoking. And so he's about to take the cigarette and throw it in the ashtray. And the other friend grabs his arm and says, I can't believe the gospel is so good. I'm forgiven by Jesus. I'm loved apart from anything I do. I can now smoke cigarettes. Don't throw that away. Give me that cigarette. The gospel, you see, is slippery. It's hard to get your hands around. And as soon as you think you get it, it slips through your hands. And Peter, who had been a Christian for probably 10, maybe 20 years at this point, a leader in the church finds that the gospel is slipping out of his hands. He needed, once again, to be rescued from his good works. And maybe that's your story this morning. The gospel was good news to you. It allowed you you to deal with some destructive behavioral patterns in your life, maybe give up some destructive habits, and you've begun to adopt this lifestyle of piety. You want to honor God in everything you do, and of course, that aspiration is honorable. It's well-meaning, and it's something we all should have some interest in. But over the years, what's happened is you've begun to pile more and more and more on yourself. Obligation after obligation. I've got to obey. I've got to get better. And your spiritual task list just gets longer and longer. You've got to perform at work. You've got to perform at church. You've got to perform at parenting. You've got to perform at the gym. You've got to perform intellectually. You've got to perform socially. And it's crushing you. You can't get out of it. What began as this great aspiration to honor God in all things now has become law to you. And because you have all this pressure, the one thing that drives you crazy is people who don't seem to live under the pressure that you have. People with freedom drive you nuts. People who say that they're Christians, but they don't have the same convictions as you. They don't behave in the same way as you. They're not as serious about Jesus as you are. And over time, you find yourself, just like Peter, drawing boundaries within your life and within the church. These are the people who really get it. These are the people who are really serious, like me, and these people over here, not so much. And you find yourself looking for a community that reinforces these types of ideas and choices. It is comfortable. It shares all of your values. And we form churches like this all the time. In fact, we form entire denominations based upon this sort of thinking, this sort of pathology. These communities are comfortable. They're safe, but there's no freedom. They're very serious. They're very pious, but they're not a lot of fun. No one really wants to belong there. No one's laughing because they're so busy trying to be good. Paul tells us three times in this passage, and I can just imagine him writing this passage, thinking with great joy about Peter maybe reading this later on. He says three times, you're not justified by works of the law. You're not justified by works of the law. Three times. The gospel is slippery because we constantly want to drift back into some system of individual validation, A performance where we do things because God is looking and he might not be happy with us. Or someone else is looking. We perform because those sitting next to us are observing us. They're looking. And friends, someone is always looking. Someone is always looking. Peter needed to hear the gospel again. He needs to hear Jesus say, Peter, you have been rescued by my works, not by the works of the law. You are free you're free to eat with who you want to eat with you're free to have your convictions and live by them you're free to pursue me in freedom not because if you don't i'll be angry with you but you see the gospel is slippery in another way as well he says knowing that a person is not justified by works of the law but by faith in jesus christ well then i don't have to do anything I'm saved only by faith, not by what I do, so why do I bother trying to get better? Why do I bother, bother changing? And maybe this sort of message at its base level has been one of the most liberating messages for you that you've ever heard. You've been set free from the tyranny of all the shoulds and the woulds and the oughts, and you've been liberated from other people's expectations. You've said, I don't care what people think anymore because Jesus loves me and that's all I need. And this has been so liberating, so intoxicating, and that's so good. But maybe at a certain point, that has sort of shifted it into something different, and you've developed a certain apathy about spiritual change, about dealing with some of the bad behavior in your life and the bad patterns that you're living by. You've become cynical towards sermons that are a little bit too directive. Give me grace, don't give me law. Don't tell me what to do or what I should do. And maybe we become so allergic to words like command or duty or obedience that our freedom has become a liberty to not deal with patterns of sin in our life, to not long to be more like Jesus, to grow in conformity with him, for us as a church to change and to grow and to become more holy in the way that we go about life. The gospel is slippery, and we can slip off in either side, because we really do think and we really do believe that the, go- the gospel is not a matter of doing and saying things, first of all. It's a matter of letting God do something for you, letting Him save you, letting Him love you, letting Him bless you and liberate you. But there's an and. It's also and letting Him direct and command you letting him become the Lord over your life. You see, Paul wasn't confronting Peter over his theology. What does he say? He wasn't confronting Peter about not believing the gospel, not being saved, but he was not acting in line with the gospel. Becoming a Christian doesn't begin with belief, or I'm sorry, with behavior, but it is inseparable from it. The gospel does begin to take root if it's really alive in your life and it begins to work itself out. He says in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, why? So that I might live unto God. And Peter's life was not reflecting this. He was taking the freedom of the gospel that grants him salvation, but for some reason he wasn't acting like it. He wasn't living out of it, and Paul called him on it. But notice, Peter's sin isn't what we would normally talk about as sin. It's not necessarily bad behavior. It's not immorality. In fact, what he was doing, he was living with utmost seriousness. He was doing everything he could to be faithful and to live a good life. His sin was failing to live out of the freedom of the gospel. He chose to live in fear rather than freedom. He was still trying to live up to Christ rather than to be crucified with him. Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Crucifixion, if it's real in your life, is the ending of one way of life and the beginning of of a new sort. It finishes life where we pursue our own justification, either in pious good works or in outright rebellion. It ends and crucifies that sort of life so that we can begin to live a life where we obey because we are justified. We're no longer trying to curry favor with God or wrestle His approval out of His hands, but we're saying, God, you love me so much. I want to be in relationship with you. I want more of this. I want to know you more. I want other people to experience what I've experienced. It's slippery getting this right and not falling off on one side or the other. It's difficult. And so we must be constantly reminded of part two, the simplicity of the gospel. The gospel is simple. He says, I know that... Verse 16, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I now live in the body, that is in this present life. I live by faith in the Son of God. This is so important. This is one of the things that makes Christianity Christianity. The focus of religion, the focus of the self, is what I do to earn standing with God and with other people. The focus of the gospel is what God has done for me that I couldn't do for myself. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith. May be justified. It's a passive verb whereby something is being done to you. You have been justified if you're a Christian. It's a big word. It's an important word. So don't take a nap on me. It's important to hear what this means. You see, if you go to the doctor, any number of things could be wrong with you. And the doctor may tell you, you know, what's going on, and he or she may use a, a number of big, complicated words to describe what's wrong. And you could say, come on, speak English. I have no idea what you're talking about. You're using big terminology. Tell me what's going on in plain English. And so we leave their office. We go on our merry way until we die of whatever they've just diagnosed us with. Or we could reason that their words have meaning, that there's a reason that they're describing this certain disease in this way. There's a lot of learning compressed in that one particular word. And justification is a term of compressed meaning. There's a lot going on in this one term. First of all, justification is a legal term. It means to be judged to be in the Right? And the Protestant reformers made a big deal and a great deal of time talking about how justification is how one is declared righteous. That is, God declares someone to be righteous. When one is justified, it's not that they become actually righteous. We all know, even if we're Christians, we're still living in a pattern of sin, we still blow it. We're not actually righteous, behaviorally speaking but legally righteous, declaratively righteous. God has judged you, if you're a Christian, to be justified in His sight. There is no more demerit. The judge, in this case God, has declared you to be fully in the right, apart from and in spite of your actual record. But secondly, we also need to remember that justification is more than a legal fiction. It's the inception of a new relationship. What Paul is excited about here, what he wants you and I to get, what he wants the churches in Galatians to get, is that God is incorrigibly relational. He's not just excited about legal records and bookkeeping, but he's telling us that this justification, though it's declarative, though it's legal, it doesn't just exist in a courtroom. No, God is incorrigibly relational, and he wants to set you right with him relationally. He wants to redeem and reconcile the relationship. It's a personal reconciliation, not simply a legal one. It's God choosing to be gracious to you and declaring that your demerits have no standing, that your sin cannot and will not rupture the relationship that he wants to have with you. The gospel, though it is very slippery in everyday life, is also very simple. Did you hear what Paul said? The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. It's slippery in everyday life how we go about living that out, but it's very simple, very simple. Maybe you're here today just out of mere curiosity. Maybe someone dragged you here, and you're skeptical about all of this. But a question for you. What if it were true? What if it were true that your justification can be final and eternal and done? In our hearts, aren't we all searching for some kind of justification? Alexander Solzhenitsyn says in the front of our bulletin, it is in the nature of the human being to seek a justification for his actions or for his life. Aren't we all searching for justification in some Manner from our spouses, from our parents, from our peers, from our jobs, maybe from ourselves? We're looking for justification. We're looking for that righteousness, for some kind of righteousness. What if it were true that God himself offers it totally, completely, and free of charge? How would that simple truth change your life? How would that simple truth change your anxiety, your worry, your fear about the future, your fear of failure? Think about that. The gospel, first of all, is slippery. Secondly, it is simple. And then thirdly and finally, it's supernatural. It's supernatural. Verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives where? Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, this all sounds a bit too mystical for Presbyterian churches. It sounds a bit far off, a bit kind of spacey. Christ lives in me, Christ takes up residence in my heart, in my life, in my body. And as Paul tells us elsewhere, that the Holy Spirit actually takes up resonance in our body, in our physical bodies. It sounds way too mystical, way too uh, pie in the sky for us serious reform people. But here's the thing. If that's true, there is hope for your life. There is hope for your life. There is no way that you can be a Christian if this is true and not change. We like to say it in town that anyone can come, no matter where they're coming from, no matter what their story is, no matter what their past is, no matter where they're coming from, they can come. But they can't remain there. You can't stay where you are when you come in. None of us can. Because why? You can come from anywhere, but you can't stay there because if you encounter Jesus, He takes up resonance in your life. He takes up resonance in In your body. And what this means is that wherever you begin, however you enter in, if you're really justified, you will begin to live and long to live more justly. If you're forgiven, you'll begin to develop this capacity to forgive others that before you couldn't care less about. If you've been loved unconditionally, you have this enormous reservoir to begin to love other people. If you, though a stranger, were included in the people of God despite all your faults, you will begin to welcome other strangers and demand no more of them than was demanded of you to come in. And your experience of freedom gives you the space to grant freedom to others. Your experience of failing and having God restore you gives you the space and the freedom to allow other people to fail and not to condemn them. Condemn them. These things, in some capacity, to some degree, will be happening if you are a Christian because Jesus lives in you. Can we stuff it? Can we work hard to prevent His work? Yes, we can. But he is working against us. He longs for us to be more free, more alive, more human. But remember, let me end with this, the assurance that a Christian that the assurance that a Christian has that they really do belong to Jesus is not just that they see this sort of change happening. Those are good indicators that, yes, you really do know Jesus, and He really has taken up residence in your life because you see the patterns of your life changing, or at least you desire for them to change. But it's not just that we see this sort of change taking place in our lives, but also it's how we respond when they don't. You see, the greatest assurance a Christian has isn't their record of performance, it isn't the change that they see, but it's how they respond to failure. When you fail as a Christian, if you get the gospel, if you understand what Paul's saying, when you fail, you won't say, well, I've got to do better next time. I've got to get my life back in order so that God will be pleased with me and that he'll shower blessings in my life. If your justification is supernatural, that is, it's not generated by your own effort, but it is granted to you, it is a change that God has wrought in your life. If it's supernatural, you will take confidence, not in your record of success, but that in the midst of failure, you know that you still are a son or daughter of God. You still trust in the fact that though you've blown it, though you've failed majestically, that you still belong, and that the Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. He gave himself for you for that very moment of your failure, that he still lives in you. What is true of Jesus, and this is what justification entails, is that what is true of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you're justified, is now true of you. It is now true of you that you are holy, you are righteous, you are set apart, you are sanctified, you are made right, independent of your performance. Why? Because you were crucified with him. Supernaturally, you weren't there physically, but in God's eyes, in his declaration, in his economy, you were there. You died with Christ, and now he lives supernaturally in you. It is no longer you who live, but Christ's lives in you let's pray that that would be true of all of us dear jesus i pray that we would take these great truths that maybe even this week we would take time to revisit this passage to think about what could be or what is true of us lord if we're still wondering if we can call ourselves a christian let us maybe revisit this passage and ask what if what if it was true could it be true Could this be my story? And Lord, if we are a Christian, if this is our story, I pray that as we confess our faith, as we come to the table, as we live our lives this week, that we would pray and ask of you that it would become more and more our experience, that we would lean more and more fully into our justification, the gifts that you have given us. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.